Hey guys, welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. This week we are switching it up and we are doing a podcast swap. So this episode is actually a recording between Christine and Dr. Nafisa Allen from the Flourish in the Foreign podcast. We are going to talk about in this episode, Dr. Allen's story of going abroad as a teenager and how that impacted her life. Dr. Allen is also going to share her perspectives on Black migration and wellness, raising third culture children, and authoring a bilingual children's book. So make sure to listen to this episode. If you want to know more about studying abroad in high school, raising children abroad, intercultural marriages, transnational migration, becoming an author, and so much more. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Feel free to leave a comment on our website or in the reviews. And let me know if you like this idea and think that we should do more podcast swaps in the future. And of course, if you enjoy the episode, make sure to follow Flourish in the Foreign on all podcast platforms or wherever you may be listening so you never miss another episode. Wellness in a really broad concept, like a very holistic way is part of why many people have gone abroad and have thrived because at some level they've made this assertion in their head and they truly do believe that things will be better wherever they're going. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that elevates, celebrates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain. So today's guest is Nafisa Allen. And Nafisa is a diplomat, a writer, an author, uh, a scholar, an academic, and our conversation that we had not only about her own journey of living and thriving abroad, but also around a lot of her scholarly work around migration and examining diasporas. We talked about so many great themes, in particular about Black transnational migration and how wellness is often embedded in the migratory experience. But I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Nafisa Allen. I'm 36 and I currently live in Lima, Peru. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which is uh, a city that has a whole lot of history, both good and bad. But I think some of my early memories of living there were really just seeing people who spoke lots of different languages, but knowing that they didn't look like me. And Newark is a really segregated city even today and there's lots of you know books written about it but there is a part of town that it tends to be Portuguese Brazilian Spanish speakers as well and that was not the part of town that I grew up in but I knew it existed and I knew that there was this whole other side of town that people had a lot of ownership over both these language groups and cultural groups, as well as the city we lived in. So I think I always had that kind of exposure to those different cultures at a really young age, even though I wasn't necessarily living next door to these communities. But one of the things I think that's really launched my career as a migration scholar in particular, and the reason why I have to know this is because people keep asking me this, and it took a very long time to figure it out, but alas, here we are is I went to a a private school for middle school after having gone to pretty much an all-Black elementary school in Newark and having gone to the equivalent, I guess, of what you get in the United States when you go to Islamic school. So I started off in Islamic school when I was sort of preschool to first grade and then went to normal public school, but in an urban city. So everybody's Black, essentially. And then I went to a middle school in a predominantly white suburb. And one of the classes there that we had was history. And one of the projects was about who was your first ancestor to come to America. You can imagine how this is a setup to fail when you're African-American and you have to explain to this whole group of white folk from a lot of different places, like how you don't know the answer to that question. But I think institutionally, it showed that that institution wasn't 
in fact, ready to integrate, frankly. And the guinea pigging that it was doing with us, I found to be really damaging. But the project itself was when I actually, I was in like sixth or seventh grade, I was like actually trying to complete it. So I talked with my family at the time, both my grandmas and as much as I could gather. And at that point, I did not know. They didn't know. And we had gone back almost six, seven generations and they were like, no, we're still in the South. So I didn't have an answer, but I did have a lot of history, pictures, information about multiple generations of my family having been in the United States. And I just remember my professor, teacher, just being like disappointed in my answer. It was like, this is really cool that you know all these people, but you don't have an answer to the question. And I was like, yeah, because American history, you're the history teacher, not me. But I just remember feeling like all of my family's history was really negated by not having this origin story of immigration. And I remember feeling that that story was a really privileged story, like to be able to say the person who came to the United States, whether it be for fortune or for disfortune, felt to me as a young person, like a currency, like a social currency in a way to be able to say that you're part of this national narrative and that you're, you know, part of America's immigrant story. And I didn't feel like I had that, but I do remember feeling really proud of my family and feeling like I didn't need to have that. Were it not for this assignment, I never felt like I was at a loss for for origins or for ancestral pride. So I thought it was really interesting to be posed in that way and to have people really have a story. I think one of the most shocking things about that for me was that I, when I went to that school, I didn't go as the only um, Black person from my prior school. There were other uh, black kids who went too. And I was expecting all of us to have the same story. I expected everybody to be like, no, slavery, we don't know. But that wasn't the case. Actually, the other three students had at least one person that they did know from their family who had come from some place. Most of them were from like Barbados, Jamaica, um, the Caribbean. So they did know. And that was also interesting to me as I look back now as an adult, expect anybody else to be from someplace else. But those questions never came up in an all black environment. Nobody was like in you know fourth grade, like, where are your people from? And that just wasn't a question that was being asked. And our school was so Afrocentric and so about black pride and like all of its diversities that I never even thought to ask that question. But in, you know, this predominantly white space, it was coming up and it was really confusing for me. And I think now I can say it was painful to try to feel like I belonged in a space where I was the only person who had this sort of African-American slave narrative and even then couldn't even verify it. Like nobody's like, yes, my great, great, great grandpa was a slave. Like my family was like, I don't think so. They were sharecroppers, but I don't know about slavery. So I just really felt like I was lost in not having an origin story. And I went to college basically curious about this, like curious about African diasporas, Black diasporas, these conversations about migration. When do people become of the nation that they're in and when do they get to continue to hold on to their ancestral identities and when not? So I think all of that really came from growing up in Newark and growing up in New Jersey, where there's just so many different people from different backgrounds. And there's a lot of people who are claiming sort of an immigrant story, but there's also a lot of people who are from my heritage of being part of the Great Migration. I call us like Great Migration grandbabies, where our families have been in the North for generations, but our roots, our cultural practices are still very Southern. And so all of that, I think, is part of my experience as a young person growing up in Newark. You know, Nafisa's story of having to go to school and present her heritage and feeling conflicted. It's actually a common occurrence I've observed for Black Americans. In particular, I've had a past guest, Maya, from episode 48 in Paris, who relayed a very similar experience on her episode. So definitely go check out that episode if that resonates with you, if that's on what you've experienced. So then I asked Nafisa one of my standard questions, which is, did you attend university? If so, what did you study? And if you had the opportunity to study abroad while in university. And actually, Nafisa studied abroad before university. 
I actually studied abroad in high school. So when I left this middle school, I went to a boarding school in New England. And that also really opened up my eyes to different cultures and different cultural groups. It was like the first time that I had been around. I went to the school outside of Boston, Cape Verdeans. I was like, who are these people? Um, where have you come from? My first boyfriend was Cape Verdean and I had so many friends who were Cape Verdean. I had never even known that this country existed. It was just very eye-opening. And I feel like that both that school and the Boston area presented a different set of demographics that I had never really been around before. And although I had grown up in a predominantly Black setting, I feel like I was being reintroduced to different types of Blackness. So I will credit Boston and some of those experiences even today to that time, just because I think it was, again, when you kind of grow up like I said, sort of a great migration baby. My my parents both converted to Islam. So I grew up Muslim and was raised that way. And I feel like it was sort of this idea of Afrocentricity as very like universal. But then I got to Boston and was like, no, there's different ideas happening here. So I went to Spain as a junior in high school. I studied abroad there and lived in Zaragoza. And at the time that was my first second language. So I really got a chance to know a lot about Spain and met people from all over the United States. So the program is called SYA. It's school year abroad. They currently have campuses in a number of different countries. I think they have China and Italy and Spain and France. At the time there was just Spain um, and France. And so I landed in Zaragoza, did not speak very good Spanish. I think I was probably the worst Spanish speaker of the group and left being one of the strongest, if not the strongest, and lived with a host family. And my host, I just had a host mom. She was in her thirties, had more than enough time to dedicate to me. And I'm still really close with her today. And I think that really launched what I got interested in, in college. So I came back from my senior year of high school in Boston, had taken all the AP Spanish classes you can take, was super curious about learning more about sort of Blackness in Latin American spaces and Spanish-speaking spaces, but just generally very curious about migration and identity around the world. And this particular program was a bunch of students from all over the United States. So it was a new group of people. There was about I think seven or eight black girls in this group of like 50 students abroad and we grew really close too. And so I just feel like it, I came back with like a very different sense of myself and an independence that I don't think a lot of my peers had, even though I'd already been at boarding school and we were pretty independent. I think I came back even more fiercely independent. I remember I, I came back and I had a cell phone because I was living in Spain and I, cell phones were a thing. And everybody's like, oh my God, you're not supposed to have a cell phone here. And my mom's like, I'm not paying for a cell phone in the States. And I was like, I literally just spent a year living in a foreign country. I'm having a cell phone. So I think I just really stepped out on my own after that. So in college, I went to Barnard University for undergrad and I studied African diaspora studies and uh, Spanish and Latin American literature with a minor in poli-sci. So with this double major minor, thankfully the program is, is very flexible and interdisciplinary. But what ended up happening is I needed to write a thesis that brought all that together. And I had been working on Latin America throughout most of my undergrad, thinking about Cuba and Dominican Republic. But I also had some really great professors like um, Dr. Kayama Glover, Dr. Um, Abu Mune, who really brought into the conversation some paradigms I hadn't thought about. French and Francophone experiences were really part of what Professor Glover works on. So I feel like I was learning about Césaire and Senghor in ways that I had never really learned about. So I finally had a vocabulary to talk about the ideas of Black power and Black nationalism and Black experiences and liberation in ways I didn't know. And I also really got introduced to the idea of colonization at that point, which up until then, and most Americans don't think about America as a colony in the same way that we think about, you know, some of the countries who've more recently gotten independence. But I think that's when I really tried to understand, like, what does it mean to be dominated by a European country? What does it mean to be uh, of the belief that you could eventually assimilate? What does that look like for particularly Black people around the world. But my thesis was around Black Brazilians and how how they form representative governments and how some of their senators 
use either race policies or social policies to try to deliver services to a Black population, which if you know anything about Brazil, it's a really complicated way to talk about Blackness. Often it's masked under socioeconomic demographics as the excuse or the reason why Black people are in certain conditions, although Black people are always disparately represented in these underprivileged uh, groups. So anywho, I think through college, I really tried to bring together all of the things that I had learned and tried to give myself the challenge of going into a new language group and thinking about Latin America from a different perspective than what I had originally thought of, which was all Spanish speaking. And so when I went to graduate school, I went to Colombia again and studied similar things. I continued to study international affairs, but under this rubric of Latin America and race and social policy. So I continued that research on Brazil, got stronger in my Portuguese and was pretty fluent by the time I finished. As an academic, that explores and researches migration on many different levels. I asked Nafisa for her thoughts on wellness and migration. I think migration in and of itself is extremely human. I don't I don't find migration stories, whether they be black transnational migration stories or, or any other segment of the population to be anything more or less than human. It all boils down to survival. Nobody will ever just say, oh, I I just chose to go to XYZ place because it was going to be worse for me than where I am now. Nobody ever chooses to do that. That's never the calculus. At some point, there is a value proposition that a person makes that they do believe that life will be better wherever they're going. And that could be defined by many different things. So most people would think of that in socioeconomic terms and they'll think, oh, I'll get a job or I'll be able to save money or I'll be able to move forward in my life in certain professional ways that I can't in one place or another. We have lots of documented information about African-Americans over the 19th and 20th centuries moving abroad just because of their own psychological well-being. The Josephine Bakers, the W.E.B. Du Boises, who left the United States, James Baldwin even, who left the United States in search of acceptance, racial belonging, not constantly being menaced by the fear that their Blackness would come back to be used against them in some way. So we certainly see that across the board. I think where in my research it's come up, and I've written about this, is in the concept of love. I think when we talk about women in particular, many of us have some value proposition around love. That's part of why we we moved, we left, we migrated. Sometimes it's a love for our children and wanting to give them a better life and hoping that they have a better experience than we did growing up. Sometimes it's for a spouse. Many people have either had arranged marriages or fallen in love with somebody who's from another country and have given that relationship the space that it requires in another country to hope that that would work out. And there's also self-love. Like I said, there's these people who recognize that they have talents and gifts that are not being either respected or reciprocated in their home environment. And so they go in search of of their people. They go in search of the people who are their like soul tribe, regardless of how they look or how they identify. They go in search of um, a sense of belonging of people who will accept them, who will love them, who will nourish who they actually are. So I think on many levels, that's true. That wellness in a really broad concept, like a very holistic way is part of why many people have gone abroad and have thrived because at some level they've made this assertion in their head and they truly do believe that things will be better wherever they're going. So that faith in many ways is very motivating to make it better. You don't want to fail at having gotten someplace and you don't have a happy ending. So in many ways, people do create their own happy ending by a self-fulfilling prophecy of having sought that in the first place and having gone through so much trouble to be displaced. People really do want to see that happy ending on the end. I think for myself, I've lived in a lot of different places and have written quite a bit about how other people do this. But I think for me, I will say I grew up in many different expat experiences, not living in one country, not trying to fit into one country, but knowing that I would be rotating and moving and never really in search of belonging so much as self-acceptance. I think if you move enough times, you realize that the baggage you carry is with you. Nobody else can put that on you and there's certain freedoms that you have because 
you're not trying to fit in. And there are certain freedoms perhaps that you lose similarly, maybe community bonding that you might lose because you're not trying to adhere to a culture. I often wonder if those of us part of the African diaspora who are choosing to live abroad are choosing to live abroad to fulfill some type of experience of home, of belonging, maybe even if it's subconscious, if there is some type of, I don't know, deeply embedded desire to continue to move, to migrate until we find a place that feels like home. And that can mean whatever. It could be heritage and roots. It could be lifestyle. It could be so many different things. But I often wonder if that is part of uh, our desire to move abroad. So I put that to Nafisa. I could go down a rabbit hole on this question. Um, I think it's very rich. I think the notion is deeply embedded in a definition of diaspora, that whenever you are forcibly displaced, you will always continue moving. I'm actually in the process of writing a book about this now. It's a follow-up to my academic book, but the idea is that travel becomes both your problem and your solution. If you are not coming to the migration process from a place of 100% agency, And I think most people who would call themselves part of a diaspora know that for historical or personal reasons, agency was stripped of people, which is what created the trigger for migration in the first place. So people who are of that descent will always continue to search for home over the generations because of that forced rupture. That's pretty integral to any definition of diaspora is that we keep moving and until we can find home, which may not even exist, we're going to keep doing that. And so I think all of these moments, whether it's the great migration or the Harlem Renaissance or today are part of that long durée trajectory of people who were not originally from the place where they were born in search of an identity or a sense of group belonging in some way, shape, or form that they probably will never find. Like it probably doesn't exist anymore, historically speaking. And so that that personal impetus to do that, I think is, like I said, very human. It's very human. If you're very rarely will you find someone who who is part of a narrative like ours, like this one, who is not willing to move or not willing to at some point uproot themselves from some part of their identity to find better because they there's something in there around historical memory of of diaspora. In our conversation, Nafisa reframed a Black American hero in the context of migration that really blew my mind. I think most people in America don't think of the United States as anything other than what it presents itself to be today, this united federation of all of these different states. And now we're all under one one rubric and we are united as a country and we operate as one united economy and people can travel from one state to another. That is a very recent idea in the grand scheme of American history. And again, this is part of where my knowledge of colonization really comes in because most people don't think of America as a colony. We don't think of ourselves as previously colonized, but of course we were. We were colonized by the British, but we were colonized by the Dutch, New York, New Amsterdam. And those realities had an effect when we think about prior Black figures and their relationships with power, race, and agency as a migrant in the United States. Um, I'm still developing this work for a chapter in the book that I'm that I'm writing now, but Sojourner Truth is for me very emblematic of a larger phenomenon of not thinking about African American figures within the context of migration. I'm talking about her, talking about Harriet Tubman, these types of revolutionary women who we now can celebrate in their time. They were rebels. They were rebels. They were outlaws. They were they were sought after. There were bounties on their heads. And not for leaving the United States, right? 
It was for passing through a variety of different states that had different laws, that had different regulations that controlled Black access and Black labor. So as we think of them now in a much more national narrative, it's like, oh yeah, she was a national figure. But not so in her time. And I think this is also part of the historical memory that a lot of us have around travel is that it was extremely violent and it was extremely punished to be traversing different spaces at different times. And even though we can think of these people as heroes today, they didn't get that heroine reception in their lives. So Journal Truth in, in particular was born in upstate New York, which was at the time a Dutch colony. She was born speaking Dutch. She was enslaved on a Dutch plantation. And she eventually, after a number of different trials and travails, runs away with her youngest, I believe her youngest children, her youngest daughter, maybe also youngest son. She runs away and she runs away, not to Canada. She runs away to the equivalent of British New York. So she runs away to an English-speaking part of New York where she believes that she can have her freedom and she can exercise her freedom. She eventually does gain her freedom and she goes in search of her son who is still enslaved. And she comes to find out that he was illegally sold uh, into slavery or deeper into slavery, I believe, into the South. And and for some reason, I'm, I'm not going to be clear on all the laws, but it was against the law to, for her previous owner to have done that. So she's the first person, Black woman, who takes a white person to trial and wins. So she she goes to court and says, this was illegal. I want my son back. And she actually wins. <laughs> and if you think about this, I mean, this is huge. Just imagine in the grand scheme of, if we think about let's say countries like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, or even if we're talking about going from Mexico to the United States, yeah, there's a border, but there's so many cultural barriers. There's so many difficulties to being able to not only communicate, but assert your rights. That's completely unheard of, particularly during this time where slavery is, is allowed. I mean, sure, it's not allowed in some pockets, but the overarching reality is that the United States had slavery and there were places where it was permitted. So she she moves forward. She gets her son back, amazingly, and then becomes this orator for not only Black rights and inclusion, but women's inclusion. And then she finds herself very sidelined in these conversations around what most people will call white women's feminism, where they don't want her to speak and they, they don't want her to be the voice of female liberation. And then of course she, you know, writes her famous um Ain't I a Woman and kind of launches into this entire career around black feminism. But if we think about her, and as I think about her as a migration scholar, I think of her as a like she's an immigrant to the spaces in which she she inhabits. She's teaching herself these new rules. She's learning how to behave in a place where she was not initially born. And she's trying to create a space for making and lawmaking for people who look like her were going to experience the space, whether or not they were born into it or forced into it. And so her story, I find to be extremely foundational to understanding Blackness over time and migration for Black women in particular over time, because it's only until recently that figures like her have been either brought out or celebrated or even acknowledged. And even today, we don't acknowledge her as a person who overcame some of these fundamental you know, barriers to inclusion at a at a migration level, we talk about her in so many other lenses, but not acknowledging those origins. And I think that's something that we see a lot. We see a flattening of Black women's experiences as they move and live abroad. We see an oversimplification of the trials and travails that they go through to move abroad and to live abroad. That sort of double veil of being both Black and a woman, that intersectionality often is extremely punitive. And I think in the rewriting of history and trying to create these victor stories, we often underestimate just how heroic these women were in being Black travelers. Harriet Tubman, of course, we can talk about for years and years and years, but there's so many other figures who are part of that same experience who we really need to reinvestigate 
and think about differently because their stories are really triumphant, not just because of who we believe them to be today, but because of how they lived in their time. And in their time, they were immigrants. Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting the podcast by either becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash flourish foreign, tipping the podcast via cash app at dollar sign flourish foreign, or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign, or purchasing a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wishlist at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to invite you all to check out the plethora of resources that I've compiled for you all at the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. There you will find a book list to help you get, stay, and thrive abroad, as well as the build a business abroad guide and moving abroad with intention guide. All right. Let's continue the show. I asked Nafisa to share with us some of her reflections on her experience as a Black woman abroad. Yeah, I think thinking of it chronologically is probably the best way. I think foundationally, my move to Spain was really important. So I would start even before some of the places that I've lived as an adult. I turned 16 in Spain. There's sort of a coming of age that happened for me at that time. And I think being a young Black girl on your own, frankly, (laughs) frankly, in another country. And number one, I had a number of other Black girls around me who I trusted and felt really bonded to. And in many ways, I think of us as like a sorority before a sorority because we experienced so much together. I had that as well as being introduced to these pockets of Black people in Spain. And some of them were recent immigrants, like recent African immigrants, but many of them were mixed or of some sort of African and, you know, European parentage and maybe didn't really acknowledge their Blackness as much as we might today have maybe pushed them to do. So I think at that point, it was really about maybe even like Black girl magic before it existed. Like, I think we felt so exceptional and we felt so powerful and so unique in this experience. And I think I came back never really being the same. Never, I never really came back thinking of the world that I was living in as my only option. And I never felt like I would ever live in one place full time. I think that that really bit me when I lived in Spain that like, why, why would you ever suffer in a place you don't enjoy? Like just go somewhere else. You can, you can do it. If I could do it at 15, why, why couldn't I do it at 20 or 30 or 40 or 70? So I think that always opened up that door in my mind that I could always move. And that's part of my calculation of my survival as a person is that if I don't like something, I always want to have the option to be able to move. As I sort of grew up in these different other roles where I was able to travel as a professional and then also as an academic, I would say, I think India and the Indian subcontinent, I traveled to Pakistan as well, I think was interesting for me. I think people were very confused by me. Sometimes it was like, People were guessing like where I was from. And of course, they always guess wrong, partially because I speak Hindi. So sometimes they'd be like, are you from this other part of India? Like, I don't get it. And then other people would just be like, oh, you're from Africa. I got like, are you from Nigeria? Are you from Congo a lot? And then it was funny. I was, I was telling people, I was in this market in Delhi and one of the vendors like, okay, you from Africa, where? And I'm like, not Africa. And he's like, how? And I was like, think like Obama, like Obama not really Africa. And he's like, oh, black like Obama. And then like this light bulb goes off like, yes, American, black like Obama. So I feel like being in India at the time that we had a black president with was perhaps a good explanation. I mean, it's kind of a a way to just be like, if you don't get it, I'm not going to dig into this too much, but like, here's your example of how a person like me could exist. But I feel like I also had some really good experiences where I think people had never really met a Black person. And I think I could 
in many ways connect with them on a personal level out of their curiosity and respect it. I think as a person who constantly travels, I don't, I don't typically offend much. I don't get out of sorts when somebody says something that sounds crass or callous around not knowing who I am and what I'm about. So I think in many ways I was in a position of being an educator, I suppose. And that can be exhausting after a while, but I, I didn't really get offended in the same ways that I think some other people did. And then I left and went to Mozambique and I think Mozambique felt frankly, really fantastic at the beginning because I felt like there wasn't this huge gulf of culture. I didn't walk around being identified as not from there. It was one of the first times I'd gone to Ghana before, but I think it's very, you know, Ghanaians can also spot African-Americans very quickly. So even there, like I felt like an outsider, but I feel like when I was in Mozambique, again, because of my fluency with the language, and my husband's Mozambican, I really got into spaces where I felt like I was just being treated like anybody else. I wasn't being like singled out. I wasn't considered special. Just like it is what it is. And of course, I had the family um, dynamic too, where like I'm marrying into a Mozambican family and I am Black, but I'm not Mozambican. So there were definitely some early clashes of them, his family being like, well, why don't you do this? And why doesn't she want to do that? And he's like, She's not from here. And I remember telling him at the beginning, I was like, I wish you would just tell them that I'm white. Like, it would be easier. It would be easier because if they thought that I was like physically not like them, I think there wouldn't be as much pressure to fit in. There wouldn't be as much pressure to like know all the things. But because I'm Black, there's a lot of pressure to like try to be Mozambican. And so that took a lot of time for both of us in sort of asserting ourselves in our relationship to be like, yeah, she's going she's gonna to do what she wants to do. And she's not always going to do the things you think she should. And she's not from here. So like, let it go. And I think when we went to Angola, it was very liberating, I think, for both of us, because Angola is also a Portuguese speaking country, but it was a country neither of us was from. So I think there we could really establish some autonomy around our family and the ways we wanted our children to be raised and the types of rules and behaviors that we wanted to have in our household, which was a little bit different than what we felt the pressure to adhere to in Mozambique because we had family and his whole family's there. And so there was a lot of, there were just a lot of expectations I think that we didn't have to deal with in Angola. And it was great. We actually absolutely love it. A lot of people find it really challenging, but we absolutely loved it and have many, many really good friends from there. And South Africa felt a little bit for me like a homecoming when we ended up there because, again, I studied in Joburg at the University of Witz, but because I was living in Mozambique, I really didn't spend as much time living in Joburg as I, I would have liked. And so this sort of maternity time actually gave me the opportunity to get to know South Africans in a way that I really didn't know them before. Like, I think I, I felt like I had known South Africans really well from my studies and my experiences, but I also got to really understand at that time the Fees Must Fall movement and what that was all about and, and some of the other protests, which again, like I had read about, but hadn't really been there for. And there, I think one of the big takeaways for me, I'm still a visiting researcher at WITS now, is the the history of racism in South Africa is so different than the history in the United States, but there's so many parallels. And one of the things that I experienced there was being like, oh, I'm the token Black person here. Like I was in one of, I was in a workshop and everybody in the room except for two people was Black. And we went around the room and nobody was Black South African. Um, the only South African was white. So there's somebody from Zambia, there's someone from Zim, there's someone from God knows where, blah, 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 blah. And then there's me. And we're like, wow, this room appears to be integrated, but it is not integrated by Black South Africans. So in this like elitist notion that foreign Black trumps native Black, I think I felt myself being the foreign Black for the first time, like this elite privileged Black person. And I'm sure at many other places I had been that but I had never really noticed it. I had never really acknowledged it, but I felt that very acutely in academic spaces in South Africa after I spent more time there and just recognizing like the places that I would go for lunch or dinner, like very high end places in Santon for me and with the power of the dollar, it wasn't very expensive, but 
I would often be one of very few Black people at these places. And and I was not just going for lunch. I was It wasn't like a special thing, but like it would be an occasion for other people. So I think that's really, South Africa for me is a place where it really is very close to my heart. I think if I ever lived anywhere for a really, really long time, it probably would be there because I just feel like there's so many experiences that I think I felt from the other side and I can really empathize with and just so many profound conversations that I had with people, South African and Zimbabwean and other communities of Black um, people who I had never seen it their way before. I think I started to see it their way in many ways after spending more time with them. And so here in, you know, here in Peru, I still don't really know. I can't really say what the Black community is like here. I often haven't really passed very many people. I think it's an active decision you have to make to go to certain areas to be in commune with Afro-Peruvians because it's not always just like easy to find those communities. But one of the things that I really felt here is that, again, now we're in a new language group. So I speak Spanish. My husband speaks it kind of okay. But we had been raising our kids bilingual English and Portuguese, and now they had to learn a third language. They're super little and they're very malleable. They're sponges, so they got it. But I actually created a children's book, a bilingual children's book this year, because I felt like I was missing these learning tools to have trilingual, multilingual content for small Black kids living abroad. So these third culture kids who aren't really from Peru, aren't seeing that many Black Peruvians and are learning this culture and never seeing an image of kids that look like them. I felt like it was something I needed to do as a mom. But I think there's there's a lot to be said about how will they identify. And I think as a, as a mom of kids who are probably going to move around quite a bit, that's always a question. Like, you know, their earliest memories are going to be in Peru. Are they going to feel like they grew up in Peru? Like, are they going to feel Peruvian? Are they going to feel Mozambican? Are they going to feel American? Like, how is that going to come together? And I know that a lot of that is based off of the things that we do now, like how culturally accepted they feel now, how welcome and respected do they feel now at just four and two. A lot of those things can be really foundational and can really affect their lives much later. So I think all those things have really affected how I think of my Blackness abroad. Nafisa is American. Her husband is Mozambican. And so, and they all live with her two kids in Peru. So I asked her what it has been like raising third culture kids. Yeah, third culture motherhood while Black is <laughs> like a full-time job. I think it has some of the complexities that are already just part of being a Black mom anywhere. But some of the things that I felt challenging are Number one, the sense of community. I think some of the people that just by the nature of my job, a lot of people that are really close to me are American. And even though we live in Peru, we kind of live in our own little bubble of English speaking and talking about shows on TV that are from the States. And we still watch Netflix. So our kids are watching Backyard Games and those kinds of things. So they have these references that are not about living in Peru. And then the references that they do have around Peru are, you know, not about them. It's it's about these larger conversations of indigenous communities and people who live in Lima and they have a really different way of life than that our kids are exposed to. And as of now, I have to say, I maybe there's a lot more anxiety than there's actually tension because again, it's been coronavirus for the last year and we really haven't been able to make local friends in a profound way. I mean my kids have like one or two Peruvian friends just because we live in the same building but not the same way that they will have when they go to school and that starts for my son next year and I think education is extremely important and the decisions that we made around their schools I hope are the ones I think parents can always kick themselves for hindsight, but I think our intentions are always for the best. We decided to put our son in a school that's really close to our house and it's it's a, it's a Peruvian school. And it's because we really just wanted, we could have put him in the British school, we could have put him in the American school, but there's just a lot of things that I had to, had to weigh and balance. I think in all of those places, he will probably be the only Black child. I think in all of those places, he is probably going to be the only person speaking three languages. 
But in the Peruvian school, I felt like eventually his English and his Portuguese, his English and his Spanish would come together because he would eventually get to an age where they started to do English in school and he he catch the English in you know, formality. In most of the American or British schools, Spanish doesn't really happen. It's not part of the curriculum. You can take it as an outside course, but it's not really part of what they have there. And I felt like that was really important. I didn't want him to grow up in Peru and not have that same level of fluency. I also felt like I would, didn't want him to, like, even at this age, he doesn't really know much about countries. Like, he, he's like, America's where my grandpa, my grandma lives. Like, he doesn't know, like, the concept of the country. He doesn't know these geographies. And he still remembers certain parts of Angola, but, like, he doesn't really get where that is on a map. And I felt like if we were in the U.S. schools, there'd be a lot of conversation about what's happening in America and what has happened in America in a way that he wouldn't even understand because he's never lived there enough to identify with those issues. So my husband and I just made the decision that we would go with this really cool, it's not exactly Montessori, but like I said, I'm kind of crunchy granola. So it's, it's like Montessori adjacent <laughs> and um, really small classes. They do have um, other diplomatic kids, but from other countries. So there's like Korean students and other places. And so I felt like it would be it would be the place for him to get the type of attention that he needs, particularly after not having been in school, in preschool. Most kids probably would have been. So that's important for us. We also still have a Portuguese tutor who virtually teaches him three days a week. So she lives in Portugal and we do online classes. My husband sits with my son and they basically preschool in Portuguese now. So he has that. My daughter is, is younger and she came here as a baby and she's kind of got her own little girl gang of other like two-year-olds. It's pretty funny. And one of their moms actually started to have a teacher, a Peruvian teacher come to the apartment building and give classes because the schools weren't open. So she's part of that group. So she actually speaks Spanish way better than my son. Well, they both speak pretty well, but she speaks it like She's, she really knows it. And she doesn't have as strong Portuguese. She she catches it from conversations with her dad, but she doesn't have that schooling yet. So I'm trying to figure out how things come back together. Maybe next year, does she also get the tutor from Portugal as well? And while he's in school, is that something she does? I think languages is really important to how I feel about parenting. I want them to speak all the languages that they know fluently. I want them to feel 100% entitled to to fit into any culture in which they have touched or felt or have experienced. I do very much feel, maybe going back to my roots as that, that seventh grader, I do feel like there's a power in giving your children the opportunity to have multiple citizenships. I felt that really acutely in some of my research on Indian communities in Mozambique. It gives people options. It gives them, at a very base level, it gives them the choice to go to universities in certain places that they couldn't go to or to get loans or to buy property. Things that could affect them very significantly in the future. So for right now, my kids do have both Mozambican and American citizenship and, and were another opportunity to present itself. I would I would make sure they had that too, even though I only have American. So I think those are the things that have come up most recently. And part of why I, you know, did these children's book series is because I I really struggled with finding materials that would kind of let us be this trilingual Black family. Like it just really is hard to find that reflected um, anywhere else. And so I, I made it. And I think that's something that comes up a lot in my motherhood is like, I don't expect anybody else to live this experience. I think it is so novel that I might be the only family. We might be the only ones and that's okay, but I'm not going to use all the privilege and opportunities and choices that we have to like sulk in the like, woe is me, this doesn't exist for me space. I just, I make it, I do it, I figure it out. And I have to DIY that for my kids because I, I have chosen a lifestyle where they're not sitting in the same place and they're not relying on grandma all the time. They don't have the same support system. Like my husband and I are, are that support system. The two of us are that. And in many ways we made decisions. Like we don't, we don't travel. The kids don't travel unless we all travel together. So even though I might have to go someplace for work or he might have to go someplace for family things or whatever, when they travel, we all travel as a family. So there's no, you know, there's no sense that, oh, mom and daddy, 
um, are in different directions or we're not moving as a unit. We move as a unit. And those are some of the things that we've had to put in place because we feel like it's important for them to see that. And we feel like it's important for them to know that there is safety and security in the ways that we that we live, even though we might live in a way that's really different from some of their friends and, and our other family members. As I've said before, Nafisa is a writer and author. So I asked her to share more about that aspect of her professional life. I feel like just recently have I been allowing myself to call myself a writer, but since forever ago, I've been writing books and magazine articles and things like that. So a lot of my work now, can it's on my website, nafisaallen.com, and then you can also just check the other sites is magazine work. So I do a lot of work on DEI, integrating diverse voices into mainstream stories around finance, wellness, real estate, a lot of different issues like that, that are now all under my byline. So you'll see pieces in like real simple parents, house beautiful, that kind of thing. And all that's like readily available done and it's still in production now. So I wrote a book about my PhD dissertation. So it breaks down a lot of what I said about Indian and Pakistani communities in Mozambique and, and what their migration patterns were like. That's coming out with Palgrave next year, summer. And I've written a gang of <laughs> academic articles. There's a new one coming out about one of these Indo-Mozambican figures that should be out, I don't know, early next year. But I've also written have interviews with Paulina Shiziani, who's a really famous Mozambican uh, writer. I think this year she was named person of the year on the Lucifer world. I've interviewed Aidu, Gotu, a lot of different folks. So that's also out in the world writing. The children's books, the children's books kind of started off as a fluke. Again, like I said, I was just like so frustrated. So the way most bilingualism works is that one parent has to consistently speak one language and another parent speaks the other, so, or caregiver. So the the child has to know that whenever they talk to person X, they're going to speak this language. And whenever they talk to person Y, they're going to speak another language. And it their age, they don't even know they're two different languages. They just know that they have to use certain words when they talk to one person or another. So my husband and I were super committed to this. We were like, this is happening for our kids. We don't care how long it takes. And once our kids got a little bit older, my son got a little bit older, he would ask us to read bedtime stories to him, of course. And the books that we were reading in Portuguese, they were just so heavy. It was like very heavy Black history stories. Like they were well beyond his, his reading level. And they also were about references, of course, that he didn't really know. Like, I mean, it's kind of like having a foreign kid read a book about Thurgood Marshall to go to bed. It's just like, it's too heavy. And and so we realized that wasn't a good option. And then we started to find children's books, but then the stories would either, most of the American stories were really simple, rhyming stories, very whatever. But you'd have to buy two books. Like we'd have to buy the book in Portuguese and the book in English for both of us to read the book. So often my son would be like, mama, I want, I want you to read the story daddy read. And I was like, well, I don't have that book in English. That's a daddy book. I can't read that book. And similarly with my husband, he'd be like, dad, can you translate this book into Portuguese? And my husband in his poor, poor heart, he would actually try to do it. And I was like, why are you trying to do this? Like, just tell him no. But he's like, no, it's important for him to learn this vocabulary in Portuguese too. Like he doesn't know how to say some of these things outside of English. And if we don't give him a Portuguese translation, he'll never know what those words mean. So uh, I went in the search of bilingual books and there are not that many, but the ones that do exist at this age group, there's one series by Shelley Admont, who I absolutely love. Her work is amazing. It's on Amazon. It has been a staple in our house. Really simple books, like really, really simple books that are translated into multiple languages. And we can get the side-by-side in English and in Spanish or English and Portuguese. And my kids loved it. Cool. But those characters are bunnies. <laughs> They're all bunnies. And when we went to Portugal, we went to Spain, we went to, I've been to Brazil. Like the bilingual books often don't have black kids or even brown kids for that matter. And even in Spanish, like most people will be like, oh, what about the books by Dora or that kind of thing? A lot of times there are Spanish words in a larger English narrative. It's not the book written in Spanish. I long story short is I found some freelancers who would who would pull together 
the illustrations for me. Um, a great illustrator out of California took the job and I did the writing myself. So I just came up with this narrative. It started forever ago, way before COVID. So the story is about a kid going to the doctor's office to get a shot and realizing how brave they are. But it's even more relevant now. And I started that story. And the concept behind the book, I just sent out to a few different friends. They gave me feedback. They, they read it to their kids. And I used their feedback to simplify the story even more. And what makes these books unique, the title of it is Xavier the Superhero. So if you go on Amazon, it's available now in ebook version and in print version, both in Spanish and English. But the, the thing that's really unique about it is just how simple it is. It's, it's a story that rhymes in both languages, which apparently is like this amazing feat that everybody's like, oh my God, how are you able to do that? I was like, it's not that hard <laughs> uh, when it's a kid's story and it's so simple. It's it's actually not that complicated. But again, I have this facility with languages and I, I speak them. I've been speaking Portuguese for over 15 years now. English, I mean, English I grew up with and Spanish for over 25 years. So I, I know how to do this stuff. And so it felt really like a gift that I could give my kids, but that also I could give to a lot of other people who may not even know that they need this. I think... Because I moved so much, I knew I needed it. My kids were asking for it and I, I needed to provide it to them. But I, I could just imagine, and I've talked to so many people who are like, they're trying to teach their kids a heritage language. So maybe their grandma speaks a language that the mom or the dad don't speak, but they're trying to teach their kid. And in so many ways, books like this are really educational for adults too, because they didn't know how to say something this way, or they or they speak a language, but they never read a language. So they know how to say all the words, but they had never seen those words written down. And so in many ways, I find that other families who have used this and who have bought this, it's really enjoyable for the adults too, because they've never seen something presented so simply, so easily, and so universally, but written in both languages. And the main character is Black, but there are other characters of color throughout the book. And it's just a really, in my mind, it's it's a gift that I say that I gave my kids, but that they gave me. I don't think I ever would have needed to produce something like this were, were I not in the situation of motherhood abroad. I never would have thought that, oh my God, somebody could need this, but I did. And I'm sure there are other families that do it. Nafisa also has an incredible project and resource called Black History Bookshelf. And I'll let her tell you all about it. Yeah. Black History Bookshelf was kind of a project that started to come out of my work after finishing my PhD. Um, I ended up going back to the States. Lots of people were like, oh my God, you're back why are you back? <laughs> and then also being like, oh my God, you got your PhD. Like, tell me all about it. And I would start telling stories and be like, oh my gosh, I never read this in a book. I, I didn't know books about this stuff even existed. I never heard of these stories. And I was like, oh yeah, I've got like stacks and stacks of this stuff. I mean, again, I've been studying this since undergrad. So I've got, I've got a milk cabral in my library just as much as I have Ta-Nehisi Coates because I've been working in this work for so long. And uh, it came to a point where a lot of people would just ask me like, oh, I want to read a book about this or, oh, I never heard a story about that. And I'd be like, oh, here's this book. Here's that book. And I felt like I had a little bit of downtime because of the pandemic. And I felt like it was time for me to really get these ideas out of my head and put them in a place where they were accessible to people. And again, similar to the children's book, I just realized like I had this particular knowledge that brought together a lot of different worlds that um, circulated around each other, maybe admired one another, but like really weren't connected. So I started off by just doing some book reviews about stories that I felt like were interesting. And then I grew to start to translate some of those stories into Spanish and into Portuguese so that even if you couldn't read the book in Spanish or Portuguese, you knew some of what it, the book entailed and eventually could get to a translation or find a version of that book. And then I think as it evolved, I started to include books that were written in Spanish and Portuguese and doing that same service back into English because um, the same way I said before, like in the U.S., we don't think of ourselves as colonized or of a colon colonial history. We also don't think about like the barriers that come up around English. We don't realize that when we're reading books about people of different cultures by reading them in English, just by the nature of reading them in English, you're missing something. You're missing some nuance of how 
native cultures would have talked about themselves. And I felt like as people started to talk about Latin America and Brazil and get more curious about traveling the world, like they needed to hear that these stories existed in people's own words, not through the lens of an American researcher or not through the lens of some visiting traveler, but like because these people are writing their own books and writing their own stories. So so as of now, the, the bookshelf is kind of a book review repository. We also have a bookstore on bookshop.org where we use sort of curated lists and people can go to our curated nonfiction and fiction list to look up different things about different topics. So we ran a book bundle around Afro-Native histories during Native American Heritage Month. So lots about Black Seminoles and, and different groups. And I did the same for Afro-Latinx heritage and had some book bundles that were sold around those stories. And I'm sure we'll do it again for Black History Month. But it's kind of for my passion for books, I just absolutely love books. I absolutely love going into bookstores and getting lost and finding manuscripts and old stories and things that probably have way too much dust on them, but really tell unique legacies that you you know probably couldn't find. So I just wanted to make that available to people who are Black history enthusiasts around the world. And not all of the authors are Black. And that's one thing I, I also realized that a lot of people, when they're talking about reading Black histories, they're assuming they're going to read Black authors. And that's just not the case. There are a lot of people from a variety of different heritage heritages who are writing about these stories and narratives. And I felt like when I would get other bibliographies or other lists, it would be really, really narrow. And that has a place that certainly has a value. But I also felt like to give true historiographic relevance, it's important to include other people who who have a passion for these same things too and may not identify as Black, but have a lot of expertise to share. So that's Black History Bookshelf and it's it's growing. It's it's on Instagram and our, our shop has all sorts of things from swag to books, <laughs> but it's just really a passion project that I, I felt like I needed to give the world. I asked Nafisa, what is her definition of wellness and how has her concept and practice of wellness evolved as she has lived abroad? That is an existential question. I don't even know where to begin. I don't have one definition of wellness, but I definitely am a person who can feel into my body and know when something doesn't feel to me. And so I think my definition of wellness is always guided by that, by that body communication that for some reason, either I'm safe, I'm not safe, I'm happy, I'm not happy, I'm fulfilled, I'm not fulfilled. And that can be at an emotional level, that can be at a spiritual level, physical level. But I'm very in touch with my body and the ways that I feel about a situation. And I think that's really important in my traveler's experience. There are times when, you know, I will do things that other people would consider to be risky in their context, but I know that it's not risky in the context in which I did it. And I know that certain people might misjudge situations or feel one way or another, but I, I'm very much guided by my intuition. I also find that there's always wellness communities no matter where you go. Sometimes they're more they're harder to find than others. But I did a Vipassana retreat, a 12-day, you know, silent meditation retreat in Mozambique of all places. And I think most people were shocked to know that that even existed in Mozambique, but it does. There's everything from yoga communities to mommy groups and all that other stuff. They always exist. There's always somebody doing it. You just have to find your people. And I think one thing for me that I've discovered about myself, particularly while moving abroad, is just how much I don't have it given my body the care that it deserves. I think being a mom back to back and and again, just moving around a lot, I just never really, uh, since moving abroad, have given my body the thank you that it deserves. I think I do a lot with my mind, but I haven't done that with my body. So things like massage, like at this point I do like weekly massage as a writer, I need it. Like my shoulders are cramping, my arms are, some of these things I think I used to consider to be luxury and in the States, maybe they would be just because they're so cost prohibitive, but outside they're not, and it's not necessarily a luxury. So I always go back to to these, these original statements by like Audre Lorde, like some of these things are not about they're not about lux. It's about self-preservation. It's not about spoiling myself. It's about the self-care that's needed to be able to get up and, and produce and, and mother and live and do all these things in a world that, you know, is always new and always different and always changing. So I think taking care of yourself is really important. 
And the only way that you can know that is to be in touch with yourself, to know what that means for you. And living abroad, that has changed a lot of how I think I have resources to take care of myself. But I do think that it's made me much more acutely aware of when I need help and and how to get it. Thank you so much, Nafisa. That was so wonderful. I enjoyed it so, so much. If you all enjoyed that episode and you want to keep up with Nafisa, you can via social media. Oh my gosh, I'm all over the social meds. My handle is the Blackspat. So T-H-E-B-L-A-X-P-A-T on Instagram and on uh, LinkedIn. And my website is nafisaallen.com. You can subscribe there to hear more about what I'm up to and what I'm doing. Black History Bookshelf has its own handle. So Black historybookshelf.com is its website and we are also on um, Instagram and Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn just under my name and I'm happy to connect with folks there as well. You can learn more about Nafisa via her show notes page on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Nafisa. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it and editing it. You know, I think there are so many layers to wanting to move abroad, even being able to move abroad, and how you construct your life abroad. But I think that we do ourselves a disservice thinking that this is brand new. I think that there's so much to learn by looking to the past, people who have done it, but also recognizing that for a lot of us, Migration is part of our heritage. It is, whether it be forced or otherwise. And I think exploring that in more uh, detail and with more nuance and care, I think would do us all good. I think it, it would. So if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more Black migration stories, more experts talking about this, the history of Black migration, or anything else that you've heard in this episode, you have to let me know. That's how I know what y'all like. So be sure to jump in my DMs, comments, uh, send me an email and let me know if this is more of the content that you enjoy. All right. Big thanks as always to Zachary Higgs who produced the music of this here podcast. And remember, it is not about going abroad, moving abroad. Is definitely not about just being abroad. No, it's about thriving abroad. Yes, yes. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Purpose of Money podcast. For more resources and information, check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our newsletter so you have the latest information on new episodes and blog posts. Until next time, keep creating freedom in your life today.